Hello, I'm Julian Jacobi, and you're listening to Beyond the Grid. Hi, everyone, and welcome to Beyond the Grid. My name is Tom Clarkson, and first up, how are you all? I hope you're staying fit and healthy, and if you're at home, now's the time to grab a cuppa and settle in, because we have an absolute cracker of an episode this week with one of the most interesting people I know. Now, some of you may not be that familiar with our guest, but all of you will be aware of his work in Formula One. How so? Well, he's one of the most successful driver managers in the history of the sport. His first client was Alain Prost back in 1982, and he went on to manage not only him, but also his great rival Ayrton Senna, together at the same time. Just think about that for a moment. The gentleman I'm talking about is, of course, Julian Jacobi. Julian is clearly a diplomat, but he's also a shrewd businessman and someone who knows Formula One inside out. As well as Prost and Senna, he's worked with most of the big gun F1 drivers over the years, and you can include Michael Schumacher, Jacques Villeneuve, and David Coulthard in that list. And he's also one of the few men who knew Senna properly, because for a period, he worked exclusively for the Brazilian ace until his death at Imola 26 years ago this week. Today, Julian continues to weave his magic over the career of Racing Point's Sergio Perez. So please sit back and enjoy hearing some fascinating insights into the world of driver management, such as how contracts are drawn up and the finer details to look out for. And he's got some genuinely amazing anecdotes about some of the stars he's looked after, including a hilarious one about Senna and James Hunt. This one's gold dust. I hope you enjoy our conversation. Julian, it's lovely to have you on the show. Many thanks for your time. I hope you're keeping well in these difficult conditions. Um, I'm still going. <laughs> okay, take that. Take that as a positive, and I can see your smile through uh, yeah. the video feed. Actually, I've got more work on now than um, as much as normal. Actually, I mean, I'm because I run, you know, work mainly run the business from home, so I have the whole of the top floor of the house uh, as the office. The only difference is that people who work with me are not coming in. But I'm here on my own, and um, we've got just as much work on now as we would normally have, but just no travel. And instead of going out you know, regularly, I'm going out for a walk or to get essentials. Is that because this point in April is always busy, or is the busyness connected to COVID-19? Well, April is always busy because normally I would be at at least two Formula E races. Plus, we would be in the Formula One season as well, and uh, the Formula One crowd would be probably just about making their way back to Europe from China, and next race up would have been Holland and then uh, Barcelona. So we would always have been busy. This is a, you know, a busy time for us anyway. Specifically, I'd love to talk to you about your Formula One involvement, which goes back, crikey, many decades now. What is it, 30 years ago? 38 years to be exact. So 38 years. And back then it was the likes of Ayrton Senna. And then today... Uh, 1982 was Alain Prost. Right. So he was at Renault. Yeah. I mean, at the, uh, he was at Renault. He was just leaving Renault or going to leave Renault to go to McLaren. And um, so I started working with Alain in 19, the second half of 1982. Okay. And then today it's Checo Perez. And I just wanted to ask you, how has the job changed over that 38 year period? Um, the principles of successful management have not changed and they, and they shouldn't ever change because they're built on, I would say three things, respect, integrity, and trust. And that should never, ever change. Now, obviously today we live in a world of social media and everything is done as of yesterday. I mean, in the old days, I can still remember when I used to send out contract proposals by telex, uh, which meant, if you remember, Tom, you might not be old enough, that meant feeding a little strip of paper through a machine. And if you were lucky, it printed it out in sort of a rather bad type print on a piece of plain paper, which had sort of three, usually three copies, white, blue, and yellow. I still remember it to this day, maybe pink. And that was a telex proposal. And after that, you know, and if you sent that out, you might get a response by telex. But if you sent an original contract, it used to have to go by post or courier. 
And actually, I remember uh, one particular time we used the Queen's Messenger. Must have been a very important document. It was a very important <laughs> document. And then after that came faxes. And then after that, eventually came mobile phones, uh, which used to give you tennis elbow carrying them around. And then came normal t- uh, mobile phones. And then, you know, emails. Uh, and it's all changed now. Well, let's talk about the contract then. I mean, back in 1982, how long was a contract? And what were the areas that you focused on in a contract? The longest ever contract that we did was 64 pages. And that was one of Ayrton's contracts. I've come across another 64-page contract in recent years, but I sent it back, so I'm not reading it. But in those days, contracts tended to be long or longer. But the most important things, I mean, it, people actually think in, form, in Formula One that the most important thing in a contract is the money. It isn't. The most important thing in the contract is actually the exit clauses. It's what enables you to move a driver on uh, if things don't work out. So that might be performance related, it might be points related. Or it could be technical, uh, you know, whether a team is having a factory engine or a customer engine, there are all sorts of things, but that's actually much more important because as you well know, in this business, you're only ever going to win the Formula One World Championship in the best car. How many drivers have won the World Championship in not the best car, say in the last 15 years, probably at Lewis, 2008, first championship? Is that the one that he won on the last corner in Brazil? Yeah. And I don't think he had the best car that year. Yeah, it might have been the Ferrari, mightn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So I think if you think about it, to win the world championship in Formula One, you've got to be in the best car to give you 90% of a chance to win the championship. So the, the principles you were talking about a minute ago, the principles of management and trust and all those things, it must mean that you are more than just the legal eagle representing a driver. You must be the confidant. You must be almost a friend. Is that fair? Well, that's when you come to the fact that it's it's respect, integrity, and trust. Those are the three elements that build any relationship in business. Uh, And and that should always be the case. Money is not the be-all and end-all. I suppose the reason I've been around for such a long time is probably because of those three things. And you have to build up those three things before you then sign a contract with a driver, I'm guessing? Well, over the years, mainly drivers have come to us by way of recommendation. We haven't really gone out looking for drivers. Uh, And I mean, one of the, uh, I was asked this question actually, because I did an interview a couple of weeks ago uh, for a French uh, magazine. And I was asked this question about Alain and Ayrton. And actually, believe it or not, Ayrton came to us recommended by Alain. I mean, we're going to come, I want to talk to you a lot about those two in due course, but that's extraordinary that Alain, who was already being managed by you, would should recommend his fiercest rival well, to you. In, in those days, don't forget, he was at McLaren in uh, 84 was the first year, uh, but he won two championships in 85 and 86, and he was a double world champion. Senna never came to McLaren until 1988. And so I'd already worked with Alain for three years. Ayrton became a client in the spring of 19, I think in the end of, end of 85, actually. So at that stage, you know, whether Alain saw Ayrton as a rival or, or not, I mean, you'd have to go forward three years till you get to, to 88 till, till they became teammates. And as you well know, in Formula One, your teammate is your biggest rival. The word teammate is a complete misnomer, in my opinion. How did you even begin to look after those two guys at the same time? Must have been such a complex thing. No, not at all. Because Alain had become a client at the end of 82. And I guess we must have done a pretty good job for him. Otherwise, he wouldn't have have recommended us uh, to Ayrton. I then met Ayrton and his father. And at that time, he had a manager called Armando Botella to share. But they were looking for somebody to help them in Europe and with Formula One in particular. And then sadly, Armando, uh, who was the business partner of Ed's father, died in 1986, cancer. So I was kind of left looking after Ed. But it worked well. Can we talk about Ayrton then? You were Ayrton's manager for nine years. How do you reflect on that period of your career? Um, busy. There was always something. His contracts were always complex. 
because he had he was a little different from others in the sense that being a national icon in Brazil and having most of Brazil behind him, we had to carve out of contracts certain image rights. Probably he was the first racing driver who carved out image rights. So the standard Ron Dennis sort of contract couldn't apply to him. But even in the Lotus contracts, it was the same thing. If you remember, they had Banco Nacional as a sponsor right across the, the, the front of the uh, overalls. Well, that was an exercise in itself. So it was different. How demanding was he? Very, very demanding, but, but very interesting. I mean, I, you know, I got along with him very well. And he was, I mean, a highly intelligent um, I mean, I would say, uh, I mean, I've looked after many, many clients over the years, not just in, in motor racing, but, you know, in tennis, and golf and music business, actors, business people. Um, but he would be certainly in the top five of the most intelligent people that I've worked with. He, as you know, had a degree in business administration university. He then sort of stopped at university. But I mean, you know, he was extremely switched on business wise. and. In those days, I don't know if you recall, remember the yellow A4 pads, beloved of Americans? Yeah, yeah. Yeah? He used to always operate with yellow A4 pads, and he would, we would divide up an A4 pad into about five or six columns, and we'd work out in advance. There were no emails in those days. So we'd work out in advance the start position in a negotiation, what we would expect the other side to come back with. Column three would be second offer. Column four would be what they would come back with. Column five would be probably where we, what we would end up with. And that's how we did any negotiation. And how accurate were those they predictions? Were pretty accurate. Well, because they were accurate because it depended on, you know, in any negotiation, it depends on who holds the stronger cards. So the stronger the cards that you hold, the more likely it is you're going to end up with what you want in column five. And because you were representing Ayrton Senna, you reckoned you always had the strongest card? Those days, yes. Was he interested in business? I mean, yes, he had that degree, but oh, did yeah, you sense he was interested in the deal and how it happened and the market forces and all that Don't sort of Don't forget that he made an awful lot of money out of Formula One. And so did Alan. I mean, they both did extremely well out of Formula One. That's another story, you know, um, between the two of them. And there wasn't much to choose between them as to how well they did business-wise. But the interesting thing about, about Ayrton was that he had a, a view for business. And if you remember, just before he died, 94, that he had set up the relationship with Audi and the Senna family became the Audi importers in Brazil of Audi cars. And they had all the dealerships and import things. So that, that deal was set up by us in 1990. We started working on it in 1990, late 92, early 93. And that came to fruition. And even after he died, the family did extremely well. And in fact, in the end, what happened was that they can't remember exactly the split between Audi and the Senna family. But anyway, in the end, Audi decided to build, build had their own production plant in Brazil, their own factory. And in order to do so, because the Senna's had the exclusivity for Audi cars, they had to buy them out in order to be able to produce the cars in Brazil. So you and your exit did. clauses, Julian. Yeah, so the family <laughs> did very well. Yeah, because, you know, they, there was no way that Audi could have actually produced their own cars in Brazil without buying out the import license. But that was, that was Adam's foresight. He was the one who had the vision for that. It was a nice deal. Beginning of 93, there was a lot of will he, won't he? Will Ayrton Senna drive for McLaren that year? Won't he drive for McLaren? He'd wanted to go to Williams, I think, but Prost got there first. That must have been... A... How did you explain that to Senna, that your other client had got the seat at the Williams and he hadn't? But then there was the whole, will he drive for McLaren and all sorts of rumours about a million dollars a race. And Can you just shed some light on that whole 92, 93 winter? I know. So what, what actually happened was that uh, Alain had gone to Williams for the 92, Two season or 93? I think beginning of 93 or was it 92? Can't remember. He had a year out in 92. Yeah, right? a year out. That's right. So basically, he, he left Ferrari. Alain left Ferrari because he, there was a slight, uh, I suppose, misunderstanding over the use of the word camion for the description of the Ferrari car. I think he got you know, lost in translation. 
So he took well, a year. What did out. Alan actually mean by the use of that word? Truck. <laughs> okay, so I don't think it was that lost in translation. I mean, well, we knew we knew what it was, but there was something between French and Italian. Anyway, in the end, he he got paid for 1992 for sitting out the year. Uh, and Anton always thought that was very funny. He said, "He said I'm very impressed that a driver can get paid the full whack for doing nothing for a year." But he then came back to drive for Williams. Ayrton wanted to go to Williams, but he was loyal to Honda. I mean, his, his basic instinct was to go to Williams earlier, but he was loyal particularly to Mr. Kawamoto, who was the president of Honda. He was very close to him because Honda had basically brought themselves and Ayrton to McLaren in 1988, and they'd won three championships together. And I remember him telling me in 1990, even late 91, when he won the third championship, that he didn't feel instinctively that the Honda was what it was, and he was worried about the future. And in 91, I remember going, we went to Spa with two contracts for Ayrton, one for uh, McLaren and one for Williams. And Ayrton was knew, I think, that he should have gone to Williams. And we, we had both the contracts ready to sign. And we thought on Sunday morning that he was going to sign with Williams. But, uh, but then he'd spoken to Kawamoto in, overnight in Japan. And he came in on the Sunday morning and he said, I'm going to stay another year. So he stayed at McLaren for 92. But he could have already gone for 92. And Nigel probably wouldn't have been there. And that's the year he won the championship. But then when Ayrton backed, when backed out, uh, Mansell stayed. I think that's right, if I've got my years right. Yeah, Mansell stayed for 92, correct, yeah. Yeah, so Kawamoto persuaded him to stay and that Honda would remain committed. What was your gut reaction about what he should have done for 92, McLaren or Williams? So it was a really difficult decision. Um, and in the end, it was down to him. You know, all we could do was present both alternatives. And in the end, he chose loyalty. And then, of course, Honda decided to pull out. And they told Ayrton, I think three months before they told Ron, and I mean, he was devastated. And then we had to find another drive for 93. Which brings one on to what you were asking, which was how come or how close did he come to not driving in 1993? And the answer is pretty close. So what happened was he was thinking of taking a year out, like Alain had done in 1992. And he was persuaded by Philip Morris to fly from Brazil to Lausanne. I think it was in February. And we all met in the offices, John Hogan. There was John Hogan, Graham Bogle, um, Lucio Riva-Bene, I think, and Angus Carlier, the famous four. I know Graham and John were in the meeting the whole time. I think the others might have been from time to time. I mean, my memory doesn't fail me. And there was a lot of persuasion that needed to be done to persuade Ayrton to basically race because he was worried that the works engine, the Ford engine, was at Benetton and that Ron was only getting a customer engine. And he was worried about the spec. And then Ron, of course, was balancing up the equation that he had to pay for the engines. Therefore, he had less money available to pay him. So it came down to uh, a discussion that I think Ron said that he only had five million available. And so Ed said, well, I'll just do the first five races then. And there was kind of a silence in the room. I mean, you can ask John Hogan, he'll, 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 I mean, it was actually one of the more amusing negotiations. So it was agreed that uh, Ayrton would, the contract said five races, million a race. And then everybody would see afterwards, you know, what happened. And then it became, was extended race by race for the rest of the season. And effectively, if the money didn't arrive by the Wednesday, he didn't come. That happened twice. Did he sit at home waiting for the money to come? But for the green light, yeah. Otherwise, he didn't leave. Is that why he arrived so late? I think it was to Imola, wasn't it? He arrived late in Imola because the money hadn't arrived, so he didn't leave. And then the office in Brazil couldn't find him. He'd gone off. And so he did come a day late. And Joe Ramirez went to Rome to pick him up by helicopter, but went to the wrong airport. So he went to Camp Ciampino instead of Fiumicino, whatever it is. And uh, he arrived very late did the first practice session, stuck it in the pit wall, if you remember, at the end of it. Well worth his million dollars. <laughs> so that was one. And then there was another occasion as well. 
German, the German Grand Prix was the other one. Was that the best deal you've done in your career? No, there have been a couple of others. But it was a good one. That was a good one. Yeah, and I mean, I, and I think, you know, the Alain deal of uh, getting paid full whack for doing nothing for a year was also not a bad one. Tell me about Senna and Prost then. I mean, how similar were they? How different were they? And do you think the animosity between them was real? No, I don't think the animosity between them was real. I think they, they both knew that to win the world championship, as I said earlier, you've got to have the best car. They had the best car, so they had to beat each other. And they would do whatever it took to beat each other on the track. But off the track, they were both smart enough to know that they were both making an awful lot of money. Pretty much the same, actually, because Ron wasn't in a position where he could play one off against the other because I knew both contracts. So they knew, actually, that if they left it to me, they'd both make a lot of money. And I had always said, and this has always been my sort of one of the things that I've always insisted on and why we, you know, we've been able to manage multiple clients is that I will never, ever disclose financial details of one client to another. It's client confidentiality. You just don't do that. So if a client even today says, by the way, you know, ask me a question that's out of order, I'll tell him, I'm sorry, it's out of order. I'm not answering that question. You know the rules. And it only ever happened once with Ayrton and once with Alan that they tried to get information and I refused to give it. They never tried again. Now, that's not to say that drivers talk. They do, even today. But what they say amongst themselves is fine. That doesn't bother me. But they'll never get the information out of me. Did Senna or Prost ever talk about the other one to you just as a, as a, as a character in their relationship? I mean, when it was all breaking down at McLaren, did one of them, were you sort of in this awkward intermediary position where you were having to well if, if you remember the movie yeah, yeah right which i was involved in originally setting up because at that stage we owned the theatrical agency um pfd and who was the director of john player lotus it was his son Peter james Reed. day reese all right yeah right so he came to me in the office um because i think his he, he had something to do with PFD. I don't know quite whether it was uh, family or he was in the movie business. I think he was probably a client, actually, as a producer. And he came, do you think we can make a movie about death? And I said, fine, but, you know, you won't be able to do it without getting uh, access to two things, you know, the family files and Bernie's files, because otherwise it won't make any sense. So we set it up and, they, you know, they went down to Brazil, met the family. I think it was James and then it was Manish Pandey and Asif whoever it was who made the movie. Asif Kapadia. And the movie was, was at about 95% accurate. And it was, I mean, it was really, it was a very good movie. But it underplayed and actually didn't. The one thing they missed was actually the role of Honda. So if you think back to the movie, uh, it didn't really, it talked about the rivalry between the two drivers. But what it didn't cover was the fact that Alain had won two championships already. Uh, in 1985 and 86, before Ayrton arrived. So Alain was a McLaren man. He knew everybody there. He'd already been there since 1984. So he'd been there 84, 85, 86, 87. So 88, Ayrton's first year was Alain's fifth year. And Alain had won two championships and arguably should have won the 1984 one, but for the rain, Monaco, and he lost by half a point. And then Alain, in, in the end, won 1989 for his third championship. And then Ayrton won in 1991 or 1990? 88, 18, 88, 1991. So Alain was a McLaren man through and through, and Ayrton was a Honda man because he came with Honda. Honda came with Senna or Senna came with Honda for 1988. That was the deal. So there was a difference there between the two. So if, if Alain wanted something done, he'd use all the levers within McLaren to get it done. Ayrton was the new driver. If he wanted something done, he'd use all the levers within Honda to get it done. Hence his loyalty when it came to that decision in exactly. 92. And that's why there was a difference in the way they got things done off the track. They had a different power base within the team. So I never really got involved in that. I ran the business. I stayed out of everything to do with racing on the track, everything to do with in the garage, none of my business. I know that Alain was frustrated that he was made out in that Senna movie to be the bad guy. Do you think he was misrepresented? I do. And one of the things that I regret is, you know, 
I helped them set up the whole movie, but then they never came back and checked a load of the facts with me. So it was slightly, it wasn't fair on Alain, but it also was wrong. Because if they had actually explained the fact properly that Alan was a McLaren man and Ayrton was a Honda man, and that's how the basic dichotomy arose, I think people would have understood it better and it would have painted Alain in a much fairer light than it did. And did their relationship change as of Adelaide 93 once Alain Prosta retired? After, after Alain left and went to Ferrari, it changed anyway. For the better? Um, it was... Well, it comes down to the same thing. You've got, to, you've got to beat your teammate. But if your teammate is now Gerhard Berger and not Alain Prost, it's different. And we see Ayrton, Ayrton respected Alain hugely because he knew that he was as good as him and he would have to pull out all the stops to beat him. His relationship with Gerhard was a little bit different. I mean, Gerhard was a very, very good driver, but he wasn't an Alain Prost. So I think Ayrton felt that he had the beating of Gerhard, whereas he wasn't automatically sure that he would have the beating of Alain, nor Alain of Ayrton either. And then when Alain went to Ferrari um, and didn't... Uh, who, who replaced Gerhardt? Um, Alain went to Ferrari for 1990, having just won the third championship, his third championship at McLaren. Yep. And his teammate in the first year at Ferrari was Mansell. Correct. And then in 91... Jean Alesi went there. Yeah, with... Well, uh, that's Jean Alesi had three contracts that year. <laughs> yeah, he did. Was it? It was Williams, Ferrari. Williams, Ferrari, and uh, there was another one as well. I can't remember what it was. The you clearly weren't there. managing him, were you? I wasn't managing him, but I, but he was friendly with Alan, so I, I kind of knew what was going on. And one contract ended up in Williams's museum. The red, the red Ferrari in in Frank's museum was payment for Jean breaking the contract. Got it. What about when Prost retired, though, at the end of 1993? Was there an immediate thawing of relations between Senna and Prost? Yeah. Ayrton had huge respect for Alain and vice versa. And then suddenly, if your biggest rival is retiring, then it puts everything in a different light. You know, you treat the relationship as one of of respect as opposed to one of uh, rivalry. Now, a bit like the drivers looking at their rivals, we talk about Alain Prost. I mean... Michael Schumacher was coming on the scene. How did you view back then the other driver managers on the grid? I mean, so Schumacher comes in with Vili Weber. But actually, the one who did Michael's contracts was me. Right. I don't know if you knew that. No, I didn't know that. Yeah. Michael's contracts with uh, um, Jordan Billy, initially. Billy was, Billy was, was Michael's backer uh, from the early days in, in Formula 3 or whatever it was in those days. And then Michael had a position in the Mercedes Junior program in sports car racing. And that program was run by Jochen Nierpasch. And Jochen and I worked together. And so we were the ones who were able to get Michael into the Jordan for the Belgian Grand Prix when Bertrand Gachot had an altercation with the police at Hyde Park Corner. And so they were looking for somebody to go in very suddenly. And Jochen Nierpash was able to persuade Eddie to take Michael. So we had to get Michael uh, a release from the Mercedes contract to drive for Jordan. And then he did a pretty sensational job. So uh, that's when Benetton came calling. So you were involved in that whole swap from Jordan to Benetton? Yeah. I've spoken to Eddie Jordan about this. I've spoken to Flavio Briatore about this. Both claim that they had a contract with him, uh, a valid contract with him. So I'd love... But there was, there was something in the contract with Jordan which enabled uh, um, Michael to move. And then were you involved with Michael all the way through, including no, but no, Ferrari? No, because it was too much of a conflict. You know, I'd agreed with Ayrton that I would help Michael because at that stage he was just a young driver. And Ayrton was always very happy to help young drivers. Once he'd gone, I think if he'd have stayed at Jordan, probably yes. But if once he'd gone to Benetton, and particularly with 92 and 93, Bent on having the factory engine, it wasn't on. So I retired from that thing. But I, you know, I used to do the odd thing or two, but um, I couldn't do it. Did Senna respect Schumacher as a driver? Did you ever talk about it? I think it was too short a relationship to have developed into that. I mean, I think that, you know, he was a young driver, came in, did a, a great job in the Belgian Grand Prix, then signed a contract and moved to Benetton. And then there was that whole hiatus in 1993. 
there was a difference between the Benetton and the McLaren because one had the factory engine, one didn't. And then in 94, there was the issue about whether the Benetton was strictly kosher or not. Did Senna discuss that with you? Yeah. But the one who had the strongest views, actually, about the 1994 Benetton was Gerhard. And he would discuss with Senna and you about the Benetton? Um, more the two of them discussed it together. Because as I said, I didn't really get involved in the technical side of things. Mm. So you were telling us earlier how you went to Lausanne and the relationship with Marlborough and Senna. And I suppose Ayrton must have come across James Hunt in his dealings with Marlborough, who was an advisor for them. Were they close? I don't know if they were close then, but they became close because, you know, I think James had huge, huge respect for Ayrton as a driver. He was the same type of driver that James was, you know, and also they just got along very well in, in the latter years. And when James was doing his TV commentary with Murray, uh, Ayrton, Ayrton loved talking to James. And we had uh, one of two things. It was the Hungarian Grand Prix when Ayrton had come up with this idea that actually he would drive for free. Offer his services to Williams for free. Yes, for free. But he would have all the rights for sponsorship, image rights and everything else like that. But he would just drive for bonuses and no retainer, which Frank thought was brilliant. Uh, well, the message had to be conveyed to Frank. And James actually went on air and did it. If you remember at the Hungarian Grand Prix. Well, and that, did Ayrton know that James was going to do that? Yes. Okay. <laughs> and then Frank rang up, believe it or not, the next morning. Say, is that right? And we said yes. And that was kind of put Nigel in a difficult position because he was trying to increase his money, having won the championship. And Frank then decided he didn't want to pay it. And that's why Nigel left to go to America. Wow. And the other side to that, which I'll tell you, is if you remember James had that grey Austin A-something van. Remember that? With the, with, the, with the stick gear shift in the floor? Yep. Remember that thing with all everything in the back of it? Yes, I've, I've read about it anyway. Anyway, we went for dinner once in London and James had parked his car in Belgrave Square and we were walking back to the car and to Ayrton's hotel because Ayrton used to stay in the Barclay. So we were walking back together and we got to this car. James got his keys out and Ayrton turned around and said, what on earth is this? He said, it's my car. And he said, a Formula One world champion, can't you do better than this one? You should have a sponsorship deal with somebody. And he said, let's get him a sponsorship deal. And, and James said, I don't want it. I, lo I love this car. And he said, you can't be seen driving around in this. And then he said, actually, how the hell do you drive it? So James gave him the keys. And he said, hey, drive it. It was about 11 o'clock at night. So Ayrton got in this car. And he drove this thing around Belgrave Square. And he had the wheels squealing and everything else. And James was standing on the pavement, you know, and saying, that's my car, it's my car. It's going to ruin the car. I'll never be able to get it back to Wimbledon. And Ayrton just kept driving this thing round and round and round and round. And um, so James said to him, can I get back in my car now? So he said, yeah. He's, he said, I'll drop you at the hotel. He said, no, no, I think I prefer to walk. <laughs> <laughs> what a great story. Was Senna obviously so intense uh, when he was doing the job of being a racing driver, but was he a laugh off it? And the fact that he was a mate of James Hunt's makes me think he must have been. Yeah, no, I think he was. And I think that he, he had Gerhardt to thank for that because Gerhardt lightened him up. I think he took a different perspective on life when he had Gerhardt as a teammate. Loosened him up a bit. Yeah. Now, look, what about your relationship with Bernie Eccleston? Because you were dealing with all of the sport's biggest names and it seems to me that Bernie was the ringmaster and nothing happened back in the day without his blessing so I'm assuming when we're thinking of the three principles respect integrity and trust that you and Bernie must have that relationship as well yeah I mean I um our relationship was not close but I mean I always had huge respect for Bernie very much so and I hope, you know, the same in reverse. And in, in a way, <clears throat> I'd like to have gone to work for him, actually. And I, we thought about, I thought about it, actually. Bernie and I did have sort of one brief discussion about it in the end of 94. And he said, you know, rather than doing driver management anymore, would you like to come and work with me? And I thought, thought about it, but it was a bit too soon because I still felt I had an obligation to help Adam's family at the time to get the charitable foundation uh, set up. And so I didn't, and it never came up again. It'd be interesting if it had happened. 
do you think you could have worked with with Bernie, the one man band that he is or was? I think so. I think he's, you know, I think Bernie's outstanding. I think he's done an amazing job. And I've always, you know, I've always actually got along well with him, like him. But when you were placing drivers in teams and the whole Senna, Willy won't he at McLaren in 93, and he turns up late to a couple of races, was Bernie not getting frustrated with you and saying, can you just sort out your driver, please? I need him in my championship. Possibly, possibly. But, and, you know, it's not to say that I haven't had conversations with Bernie over the years about drivers, because Bernie always liked to know what was going on. And, uh, you know, and Bernie could be very helpful in certain circumstances. He could open doors. He could also close doors, both. Mm. But, um, you know, I think he's a remarkable man. So, Julian, we're coming up to the anniversary of Imola 94. Clearly, we've learned over the last however many minutes how close you were with Senna. How do you reflect on that weekend now? Um, it's kind of, I mean, clearly, it had a big effect on what I did with the rest of my managerial career. Because instead of just working with Ayrton and his family on building up all these businesses, suddenly I had to find, you know, I had other things to do. Although I stayed working with the Senna family and foundation, I still work with them today after, what, 26 years now? So, you know, I'm still working with the family, but on a few things. Um, it's hard to put it into words. You know, it's something that you never expect. I mean, even we all know that motor racing is dangerous. And, you, you know, we've seen all the tributes to Sterling Moss in the last week or so and it was much worse in his time and then sort of formula one got a shock because of what happened with ratzenberger and then with senna then there was bendinger's accident i think in monica afterwards is that right absolutely right yeah so it got a wake-up call you know and thank goodness you know max mosley and sid watkins and bernie between them you know got a grip of it and did an amazing job to you know improve the safety of formula one and allowed us to carry on. I mean, I'm not sure. I mean, I, you know, it's not the only driver that I've, I've lost as a client. It was Dan Weldon uh, in, in IndyCar and also Richard Burns through cancer. Mm. So it's one of the risks of being involved in this sport. It can happen. Sadly, it's happened three times too many to me. Did Senna discuss the risks with you? Not really. Did he talk about it that weekend? Everybody said he did, but he... He was obviously very upset with what happened, first of all, with Rubens' accident on the Friday and then with Roland Ratzenberger's fatal accident on the Saturday. But I don't think there was any question that he wasn't going to drive on the Sunday. People said there was, but there wasn't. And, you know, I mean, we all stayed in the same hotel. He went to see Frank on the Saturday evening. And I think Frank said if he didn't want to race, he didn't have to race. But he did. Did Sid Watkins say anything to him? There's... I don't know. I'm not sure. I knew what I knew what Frank had said because I, we were all on the same floor. In the hotel. I don't know what Sid said. The aftermath of that accident, you're looking after all of Senna's business affairs. How long did it take you to sort out the estate of Ayrton Senna? Well, there were two sides to it because there was the estate in Brazil, which the family and you know, the family lawyers there looked after, and then there was everything outside Brazil which we looked after. And how complicated was it? It wasn't that complicated, but it was, it was hard to do. But it wasn't the first time I'd done it, but it was the first time I'd done it being emotionally involved because I'd also been the executor of Gilles Villeneuve's estate um, because Jody Schechter was the, one of the executors of Gilles' estate. And at the time, Jody was a client. We were both living in Monaco. And, uh, at the t and Jody came in my office one day and said, look, I've got to go back to driving. Ferrari and I don't have the time to do this. Can you take it on? So I took it on. So I'd already actually done that once before with a lawyer from Montreal. And that's how I actually met Lawrence Stroll. But that's another story. Well, okay. come on to that. It's all connected. It's, all it is, connected. it's extraordinary how incestuous the whole business is actually, isn't it? Were you involved in the funeral, the organization of the funeral, no. Senna's funeral? No, I came back to London. Can't remember the exact timings of it, but... Ayrton was flown back direct from Italy to Brazil. I came back to London you know, to see the family and my, and my boys. And, you know, we were home together and for a couple of days. And then I flew to Brazil. What are your memories of, of the funeral? Well, it was the first and, and only time I hope I, I've ever been to a state funeral. Um, it was pretty impressive. Did you learn anything about Ayrton that you 
hadn't been aware of during well, I, his life? I, I, I hadn't realised quite just you know how much he, he... I mean, everybody knew that he was loved and respected in Brazil, but I didn't realise until I went there just... Basically, he was the national icon of Brazil, probably even more so than Pelé. How so? Well, because Pelé played for a team. They'd won the World Cup, what, in 1970, uh, 74? Anyway, I think they won it three times, Brazil. But that was a little bit... So, the, you know, the two national icons in Brazil were Pelé and, and, and Senna. But Senna was current and Pelé retired. So he was basically... He represented Brazil on the world stage. And you didn't realize that until you actually went there and saw it. Just how huge he was. Yeah, yeah. And I, you know, I've spoken to Pele since because they, he and Ed were, were good friends. And, you know, we've chatted about it. And, you know, and he said that it was very important for Brazil once the football team stopped winning that we had Ed because he was, you know, football put Brazil on the map and on the global stage because they were so, they were brilliant in, in that era. Um, and then along comes Ayatun, who replaced, he was the star of Brazil. How hard did he work the Brazilian media in particular? Uh, would he go on all of the TV shows? And the- um, Well, I can't speak for everything that happened in Brazil, because that was the other side of the business, which was run by the family from the family office. And I ran the outside of Brazil business. Um, but all I can tell you is that you could never get him out of a racetrack because he'd done all the English language, you know, all the FIA stuff, all the team stuff, and then he did all the Brazilian stuff. If you booked a table for dinner somewhere at, you know, 8.30, you never sat down till 10. Just signing autographs, doing... Well, no, because he never, you know, he was doing all the press interviews for Brazil, for Brazilian. Um, yeah, it just took forever. And once, and once he got started, you couldn't stop him. He was a good talker. There was no short answer. <laughs> now, Julian, is it true that in... Um... The aftermath of his death, you looked into the possibility of a Senna Formula One team. No. You didn't think about setting one up? Not at all. In hindsight, do you think it could have worked? Could it have been more successful than Fittipaldi's Copasuka? No. Um, I mean, as you well know, running and owning a Formula One team is jolly hard to make money. And I don't think it would have been the right thing to do. I don't think the family would have been able to cope with it. Uh, I don't think it would have been the right thing to do. It would, uh, you know, where, which team would you buy? Which one would you own? Which one would you set up? And using the Senna name, it was much better to set up the Senna Foundation uh, as a charity and for all the good that, uh, that Viviani, his sister in particular, and the family have done for the last uh, 25 years, 20, well, 26 years. They've achieved far more than a racing team could ever achieve. Yeah. So when your friend and client, Alain Prost, came to you and said, Julian, I want to do Prost Grand Prix, what did you say? Okay, so after Ayrton died, Alain had an extremely good relationship with Ayrton's father. They got along very well. Is that something that carried on throughout all of the McLaren era? Prost would always get on well with I Senna's think father. that Ayrton, um, I mean, Ayrton's father was an amazing, is an amazing man. I mean, he's in his 90s now. and. He had a he he always he had huge respect for Allah and vice versa. And after Ayrton died, I think you know Allah went out of his way to be with his father, talk to his father, and so that relationship carried on until you know when Allah started Proscore Pre, um, and we kind of worked together on it because uh, I was still I still had a contract with the Senna family, which I fulfilled you know for a couple of years after. Uh, died, and including the establishment of the charitable foundation. So I was working on a lot of that stuff for a couple of years, and I didn't manage any other drivers in Formula One. And then Alan came and said, "Listen, I'm setting up Cross Grand Prix. Can you help me? On, can we work together?" So I said yes. And Ed's father was very happy, so he was kind of a little bit involved quietly behind the scenes. Why did Cross Grand Prix fail? Hard to say, but I think that the relationship with Peugeot. Was tricky. I, I actually, I'm trying to think back and remember. I can't actually remember all the details. It could and should have worked, but again, it comes down to one of the reasons, you know, for not running a Formula One team. It's really hard to a be successful and b make money. Do you think Alain had all of the necessary characteristics you need to be a successful team boss? If you compare Alain Prost and Ron Dennis, for example, I think he did because I think he learned a lot from Ron. 
and Alain will always tell you he learned a lot from Ron, but maybe it's not so easy running a Formula One team from within France. But just I mean, politics Renault, I mean, today, and... Well, I mean, Renault today run a big chunk of it from Enstone. I mean, the engines are, you know, are in Biri, but a lot of the team is run from Enstone. I think it's, you know, we in this country have a much more liberal approach. There's less regulations. Very difficult on an employment perspective in France. You know, what the working week number of hours, all that kind of thing. Working week number of hours, new hires, you know, the social security. I mean, it's social security. I think employers here pay around thirteen percent, just over national insurance. In France, it's over fifty percent. So the cost of employing people to work in France uh, is, is is much is so much greater. That's why so many Formula One teams have bases here because it's it's just it's where things happen more easily. And I think, you know, there was a lot of red tape in France at the time. Mm. Must have been hugely frustrating for Alain. After all his success as a driver. And... Yeah. You know, he should and could have run a very successful team. Thinking about it now, and I hadn't really thought about it until you mentioned it, but if, if let's say, he hadn't had Peugeot and had some, uh, a different nationality of engine supplier, might have been different. I don't remember the Peugeot being a particularly good engine, quite aside from all the politics. It wasn't, but I suppose, you know, there was very difficult if you're Prost, Grand Prix, and Peugeot come and, you know, with, and they come together with the French industrial establishment, you know, like Matra, you know, all, and Michelin and whoever, you know, it, it comes as a package. And if it's presented to you, it's hard to say no. But I wonder if it would have been different if they'd had, um, a different nationality. Sort of Honda engines, for example. Or... For example, mm. yeah. What about some of the other drivers you've worked with, Julian, in Formula One, or and on the fringes of Formula One as well, but starting in Formula One, Coulthard, David Coulthard. How much have you done with him over the years? When I left IMG um, to look after Ayrton full-time, I kind of left behind you know, Alain and David Coulthard and Gilles de Ferran. They were all clients at the time. But I, you know, I left them all behind. And I remember in 1994, after Ed and died, so David took over, and he was there with he was in with Damon, and one of my ex colleagues at IMG was looking after David, and he persuaded David to leave Williams and go to McLaren, and I tried to talk David out of it. I mean, I wasn't looking after any driver at the time. But I happened to see David several times and I said, you know, why would you leave the best car? So then the question for David would be if he'd stayed. I mean, you know, obviously, I think he got paid more money at McLaren and he was there, what, for nine years? Yeah. So he didn't do so badly. But he might have won the world championship in a Williams in 1996. He could well have won the world championship in 95 when Damon won it and 96 when Jack won it. In fact, Jack wouldn't have had the seat if David was still there. So I was very surprised when David left because we brought Jack over and then I got back into Formula One looking after Jack, who then won the world championship. So David could and should have won the world championship. Okay, he's a man who could and should. What about Dario Franchitti, three-time winner of the Indy 500? Why didn't he get a decent crack at F1? Because he had a contract as a McLaren reserve driver. What, what era are we talking? What year are we talking? About 96, 97, when Mercedes were the engine suppliers. And they wanted to keep him as a reserve driver on a long-term contract. But I couldn't see how he could ever get into the team with uh, DC and Mika Hakkinen as the two race drivers. And I probably wasn't wrong because they were together, what, for eight years, nine years? No other doors opened up for Dario, which... There was one chance of him getting into the Jaguar, which got buried in politics. Uh, I think if Jackie Stewart had still been running Jack, uh, Jaguar or hadn't been, it had been the Stewart Ford, Dario probably would have been in that car. It's one of the great mysteries when Dario tested that Jaguar that at Silverstone, the test didn't go well. And it's even to this day, I get conflicting stories about what actually happened. I'm not entirely sure what happened, but it, but it didn't go the way it should have done. And I think there was something, there was something odd, put mm. it that way. Politics came, mm. came into it. But I don't think that Dario regrets. I mean, you know, he, he had a stellar career in America, three Indy 500s, four championships. It's not too bad. No, so, 
certainly not too bad. But I always think with Dario, there's a there's a tiny bit of him that's wishing he'd had a proper crack at Formula well, 1. Well, yes, but again, comes back to what we said right at the beginning of this, is that if you're not in the best car, you're not going to win the championship. Dario was certainly good enough. I mean, if you take all the Scottish drivers, put them all on a par, you know, three of them together, DC, Alan McNish and Dario, they were all brilliant in their own way. Mm. They were all successful. I mean, you know, Alan won Le Mans three times. Um, Dario won the Indy 500 three times. Take some doing. While we're talking politics, your relationship with Villeneuve led you to British American racing. And I think you were one of the directors when it started up. Am I right? I was the, one of the first directors in and I was one of the first directors out. <laughs> I mean, what, what actually happened there? Well, it wasn't originally my decision that Jack should leave Williams. He just won the championship. And, you know, he had this thing about wanting to run his own team. And I've known Jack since <clears throat> he was a little boy because in sorting out the estate of his father, we'd created this trust fund for him and his sister Melanie to go to school in Switzerland. Then I kind of lost touch with him and his mother, Joanne, and it wasn't until Craig Pollock appeared on the scene as his gym teacher at school, who rang me up one day and said he's got this, you know, son of Jill Villeneuve, and you know, what is, what, how does he get into driver management? Because Jack had asked him to look after his management, and I said, well, that's a whole long story. And I actually asked. This was probably in about '93, and I asked Ayrton if he minded if I talked to this guy Pollock. And he said, who's he, about whom? I said, Jack Villeneuve. And he said, is that the son of Jill? I said, yes. So he said, how old is he? And I said, oh, he's about 18, I think. Just leaving school. And he was going to go and race in Japan. So Ed did a quick calculation and he worked out that he probably wouldn't be a rival of his. So he said, yeah, why don't you tell him how to do things? So I sat down in a hotel in Geneva and told Craig Pollock how to run client. Trouble is he didn't listen. And then uh, he did race in Japan and then he went to race in IndyCar. And he did very well, and he won the championship in 95. And then when David left, Frank wanted Jack. So I had to work on Frank to replace him, to replace DC with Jack, because Frank didn't really want to talk to Craig Pollock. Why did Frank not want to talk to Craig Pollock? Good question. I don't have the answer to it. But I don't think that Craig... He managed to put a lot of people's backs up very quickly. Right, okay. You said that... Jacques had this desire to race for his own team. Do you think it was Jacques' desire or Craig's desire? Who was the driving was force behind desire. it? I think it was Craig's desire and he persuaded Jack to do it, which I was against, as I thought he'd only been in Formula 1 two years. He, you know, he came close to winning the championship in 95 in his first year. He won it in his second year. And I thought he could have actually, he could have even gone to Ferrari. Jacques Villeneuve? Yeah, he could have done, but they had Michael there. That was the problem. But, you know, he could have gone to any, any other team. So I, I kind of thought, why do you want to set up your own team? I wasn't sure it was the greatest idea to do it. And Craig certainly wasn't the right person to run it. I mean, it didn't take long. I mean, as I said, I was the first director out because I fell out with him over it. I, mean, I couldn't. It all became a huge ego trip for him. And the team wasn't being run properly. You know, Adrian Reynard fell out with him. I mean, everybody fell out with him. Oh, and claiming to win your first race was... Huge ego trip. Frustrating time for Villeneuve. Do you I think, think you know, Jack, Jack's career, he, he could have won more and done more had he gone a different route. Do you stay in touch with Jacques today? Yeah, very much so. See him at races. I've always got along well with him. Which brings us up to today and your current charge in Formula One is Sergio Perez. Tell us how you got together with Jacko. Uh, end of 13, I think, when he was uh, at McLaren. Again, he came to us. Um, he was being managed at the time by Adrian Fernandez. And that didn't go very well because, I mean, Checo had done very well at Sauber in the early years, probably the right place for him to be. And then he was in the Ferrari Academy and probably, and then somehow Adrian Fernandez got persuaded that the best route was to go to McLaren, and they, which wasn't probably the best time to go to McLaren. And they signed this contract, which... I would never have signed. Because actually, if you think about it, at the time, it was Jensen and uh, Checo and McLaren. And when you move to a team where you've got an incumbent driver like Jensen, it takes you quite a bit of the season to get up to speed and how things work in a team. 
I mean, the only driver who's ever come into a new team, I think, and won the championship straight out the first year was Ayrton in 1988. I might, I might be wrong on that one, but I mean, I, I don't have all the facts. You, you, you know those much more than I do. <laughs> but of course, Checo was replacing Lewis Hamilton as well. So, yeah. you know, there's, there, were a, there was a certain expectation inside the team as well, I guess. Yeah, and I mean, I, he didn't do a bad job. And in the second half of the season, he was arguably actually better than Jensen. So actually, if you'd thought about it, but I think it was the wrong time of Checo's career to go there. He was too young and inexperienced to go there in that particular year when the team wasn't at the level that it had been. Jensen was the incumbent, and it was hard for him. Um, I think if he'd have stayed a second year, I think you would have seen it very differently at McLaren. But the contract that they signed gave uh, Ron the options. I don't know what was in, J- in Jensen's contract, but, you know, so anyway... I was asked to take over at the end of 2013, which I did. Do you think Checo is underrated? Very much so. I mean, how many other drivers have scored podiums outside a driver from the top three teams in the last few years? That's a stat that I don't have. (laughs) But not many. No, no. Not many, and Checo's had a few. You know, he had uh, Sauber and at Force India, as it was. And, I mean, he's finished, what, P7 in all the years... Uh, he was the best of the rest outside the top six from the top three teams in each year, except for the year that Paul Cynthia went into administration, 2018. How difficult was it for Checo to take action against Force India in 2018? Not easy because, you know, he's a racing driver and racing drivers want to race. Um, and to have all that weighing on you, the fact that, you know, you're not sure if the team is going to fold and he was owed a lot of money and the staff, looked like they weren't going to get paid at the end of July. It wasn't, an, it wasn't a nice place to be for him. And he, you know, Checo's Latin and Latin drivers. And, you know, I, I kind of, I suppose, in a way, I get along very well with Latin drivers because apart from Ayrton, I've had Juan Pablo, Montoya and Checo. And it's a different understanding to European drivers. They look at life differently. You know, they're much more family orientated and emotions are different. You have to understand them. And... Checo was in a really difficult position because he felt loyalty towards VJ because VJ had taken him in for 2014 uh, and given him his, a chance to reboot his career. And he hadn't done badly. I mean, finishing P7, best of the rest, podiums, he'd done pretty well everything he, you know, that was expected of him. Um, and yet he knew that the team couldn't survive in its current format because VJ wasn't in a position, nor was Sahara to put in the money that was required because of all the embargoes. Did you have any guarantees from the team that his future was assured? I mean, given your friendship with Lance Stroll. With Lawrence. Lawrence Stroll, sorry, Lawrence Stroll, yeah. I think it was, Lawrence is a very smart guy. And I've known Lawrence since uh, 1990. I met Lawrence because his lawyer in Montreal was the same lawyer who was the lawyer for Gilles Villeneuve's estate. And I used to work with Lawrence when he first came to Europe and he set up the, had the license for Polo Ralph Lauren. And actually Lawrence was a client of mine. So we've known each other going back uh, 30 years now. And so when Lawrence expressed an interest because things weren't going too well at Williams, it was kind of a putting a two and two together to make five or six. And it was the right thing to do. I mean, there was no guarantee that Lawrence would actually be able to get the team out of administration because under, you know, UK law, an administrator has to look at everything at arm's length. And, you know, there were other suitors. Um, but how it got decided by the administrator was the administrator's decision. And I think Lawrence was always of the mind that Checo was the right person to partner Lance because, uh, and they get along very well. I mean, you know, Checo's a very good person to learn from. And one of the things that Checo has always said is, you know, you're always learning from people around you. He's always been extremely good at managing tires in races. I mean, he's, a, he's an extremely smart race driver. And he said he learned that from um, Kobayashi at Sauber. You had a different way of doing things with tires, mm-hmm. and, and Checo learned that at Sauber. Oh, interesting. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And so I think, you know, it was the right decision for everybody. And But particularly, the most important thing was for the staff of the team. And one of the reasons why Checo was 
the prime mover in the administration was to protect the, the staff because he'd been there for yeah, was four it, and a half years. Yeah. yeah, was in year five. And, you know, it was like his home, as he said. It's a Latin way of looking at it. This was his home in Europe. And he was desperately worried that they could all lose their jobs. And uh, you know, they were, they've all got families and, you know, they all worked really hard um, in the factory on the road. And he just felt that it had to be him to do it. Otherwise, it wouldn't get done. How serious is Lawrence Stroll? Very. How serious is he about this racing team? Do you believe that Checo can win races? Well, if he has the right car, he can certainly win races. Mm. But will he get the right car with Racing Point slash Aston Martin as it's going to become? Well, I think it'll be, it will be. I mean, it looked like it was going to be until everything went into shutdown. It looked like the car was going to be pretty competitive this year. I mean, you're always going to have the top three teams, but then you've got the midfield, which was becoming very competitive last year. And the racing points struggled a bit because they were late onto the scene in, in 2019 because they didn't have the money in the middle of 2018 to start work on the 19 car. So they were playing catch up. But now with the right investment in, in the team by Lawrence and a, a pretty smart decision to go the route they've gone, I think that the car will be, hopefully, who knows now, um, will be as competitive as it could have been. And, you know, in the right, I mean, if you're not in the top three teams, it's always a question of being, being picking up the crumbs, but you've got to be there to be able to do it. So if you're not sitting on the tail of people, you're never going to be able to finish on the podium. But Checo's done it before, and I have no reason to doubt he can't do it again. Do you think Checo's relationship with his country, Mexico, is, is in any way similar to Senna's with Brazil or Montoya's with Colombia in terms of fame? and It's pretty good. I mean, he is a national superstar in Mexico, um, but I think it's probably an inverse relationship to the success of the football team. <laughs> because, you know, soccer is, they're mad about uh, soccer in Mexico and when the team's doing really well, but if it's not doing quite so well, then Checo is sort of, you know, the, the national outlet for national pride. No, he's hugely popular. I mean, you know, uh, Tom, you've been there. You see the billboards when you drive in from the airport to the race. Yeah. So, you know, arguably, I suppose, if you look at today's Formula One grid, how many drivers have that sort of national following? There's Lewis in this country, um, Max in Holland, Checo in Mexico. Don't know if Vettel has the same following in Germany. He should do, but I don't know whether he does. But then he doesn't, he's not really too bothered about you know, everything. He just goes home after the races and is quite happy to be at home. It's interesting that you mention a couple of names there, because I was going to say to you, is there anyone else on the current grid who you'd really like to work with? And I think Lewis Hamilton currently doesn't have a manager. I don't think Sebastian Vettel no, he has does. a manager. Lewis, Lewis works with Mark Hines. Does Mark fulfill the same role that you would, for example? Well, every driver is different because drivers want different things. You know, Lewis likes to do quite a lot on his own. He's pretty smart. And, you know, he's been around a long time now where he knows where to go and, 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 and what, which buttons to press, put it that way. But when you're negotiating a deal, does a driver not need a sort of good cop, bad cop? Yeah, and, 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 and Lewis has an extremely good lawyer who he's used for years. And he's got good people around him. And he's pretty smart himself. What about Vettel? Again, I think uh, he's also pretty business-like. I don't actually know too much about who looks after Sebastian, but he hasn't done too badly. And is there anyone else in sort of the last 30, 35 years that you, I mean, crikey, I've learned in the last hour and a bit that the people you have worked with, the list is as long as my arm, but is there anyone who, for whatever reason, you didn't work with that you would like to have done? Um, I suppose it would have been interesting to go back and see if I, if I'd worked with Lewis or not. Um, there, was, there were rumours at one time. Uh, I seem to remember. <laughs> Close, but no cigar. Yeah, but I don't think you should ever look back. I think you should look forward. And there are young drivers, you know, coming up. Uh, I mean, I think, you know, that there is a changing of the guard in Formula One. Um, if you look at the younger drivers like Lando, George Russell, Charles Leclerc, amongst others. You know, there, there are younger drivers coming through. Anyone in your stable that we should look out for? I always keep these things a little quiet, Tom. Okay. <laughs> wow. Well, just thank you for a, a wonderful chat and some great insight there. Pleasure. Stay safe. 
Well, I hope you all enjoyed that conversation as much as I did. There were so many little nuggets I learned. I mean, how was it even possible to manage Senna and Prost at the same time? Just extraordinary. It's like one person overseeing the careers of Lewis Hamilton and Max Verstappen today, and yet somehow maintaining the trust of each one. And I might just re-watch the Senna movie now, bearing in mind the context Julian emphasised about Senna being a Honda man and Prost a McLaren man. There are just so many good stories. Julian, thanks for your time. It was great to catch up. Well, that's it for another episode, but of course, we'll be back next week with another big name from the world of Formula One. In the meantime, if you want to drop me a message about the show, as always, I'm at Tom Clarkson F1 on Twitter, or you can use the hashtag F1 Beyond the Grid. We really love your comments and we read them all. It seems many of you enjoyed hearing from Nick Heidfeld last week. Quick, Nick! He had lots to say and we're delighted that so many of you liked it. A very genuine driver and person, said Simon Donald on Twitter. He gave an honest and interesting insight into other drivers as well. Really enjoyed this podcast. Yes, he was so candid, wasn't he, Simon? I couldn't agree with you more. And Nyral C got in touch to say, loved the recent podcast with Nick Heidfeld. It's crazy to think how close he was to getting some of F1's best drives. Shows you need timing to go with talent. I'm hooked on these podcasts. You have the best job in the world, Tom. My only complaint is that the podcasts aren't long enough. Well, Nyral C, you might just be right on all fronts there. You need both T's in motorsport, timing and talent. And yes, I love having long form conversations with the legends of our sport. And if you're worried about F1 Beyond the Grid not being long enough, I might just have something up my sleeve to keep you listening for longer. Very shortly, we'll be launching a new podcast, a sister show, if you like. It's called F1 Nation, and it will be hosted by me and F1 commentator extraordinaire Alex Jakes. You can expect lots of F1 discussion and some fun as well, because we're going to talk about the F1 things that are making us laugh, as well as welcoming some friends and guests onto the show. Just look up F1 Nation in your favourite podcast app and hit subscribe to make sure you don't miss out. For now, though, thanks for listening. Beyond the Grid is produced by F1 in association with Audio Boom. Until next time, stay safe, keep washing those hands, and keep it flat out. <laughs>